Podcastle, episode 256, April 16th, 2013. This week's story, The Red Priest's Vigil, by Dirk Flintheart. I'm Marguerite Kenner, editor of the young adult fiction podcast, Cast of Wonders. One of the joys and frustrations of editing a young adult podcast is finding an amazing, fantastic story and knowing instantly you just can't use it. Too old, too young, too explicit, too preachy. YA is many things to many people, but to me it's about finding the balance. Young readers aren't oblivious or immune to sex and violence, but it's less the center of their world than exploration, self-discovery, and navigating the passage of time. For relaxation, reassurance, and inspiration, young adults look to fiction for different things than adult readers. Admit it, when you were in your teens, did you read Tolkien for the song lyrics? Or did you read Heinlein for the social commentary? No, you probably identified with young characters thrust into situations beyond their comfort zones and them exploring and dealing with those situations. So when Dave offered us a chance to pick a sparkling gem for the Podcastle Heavens, Graham and I put our heads together and we remembered this story. Podcastle is therefore proud to present The Red Priest's Vigil, written by Australian author Dirk Flintheart. The story was originally published in Andromeda Spaceways In-Flight Magazine, issue 25, and was reissued in their Best of Horror, volume 2. Dirk is an Australian author living in Tasmania, and he's been producing short science fiction, fantasy, and horror stories for the last 13 years. Look for a novel from him soon out on the Fablecroft imprint. Your narrator is a man who hardly needs an introduction in escape artist circles, the esteemed Grand Dunlop, who in addition to being the audio producer of Pseudopod, is the host and audio producer for Cast of Wonders. Now, keep your friends close, and your enemies closer. We've a tale to tell. The Red Priest's Vigil by Dirk Flintheart Your Grace, I believe you are correct. Tommaso della Forte is the most dangerous man I have ever met. I followed your instructions to the letter. Your information as to the whereabouts of the Condottiere de Mortibus was accurate. It was with very little difficulty that I purchased the inn, and as a matter of goodwill I was careful to retain all of the long-term tenants. De Mortibus lived in a room on the upper floor and made a poor living as a teacher of weapons. I had expected more from the man who led the sack of Malors. I allowed the passage of a month in order to allay suspicion before I began to administer the draft. Once again I congratulate you on the accuracy of your information. Administered in wine, in precisely the proportions ordered, the poison produced in the man every symptom of a most terrible wasting illness. Though he had little money, To my alarm, de Mortibus was afforded a chirurge by a patron, an old friend, I believe. I did not manage to ascertain who it may have been. In any case, the chirurge professed himself puzzled and bled the man profusely to no avail. Indeed, I suspect his ministrations were responsible for a sharp decline in de Mortibus' condition, 
and I was forced to reduce the proportion of the draught in the wine for a time. Demortibus continued to fail. Perhaps two months after I began this work upon him, Demortibus confronted me in the kitchens. By this time he was much weakened and could get about only with great effort. He had not been able to pursue his livelihood for some time, and had come to depend upon my charity as I had planned. Therefore something of trust and familiarity had grown between us, and I was not surprised when he sought me out alone. "'Take this, good Marotti,' he said to me, and pressed a sealed packet into my hand. I beg you see it delivered to the hand of Conrad Hythink, whose free company you will find in the city square this month. There is no other I may entrust with it, and I swear to you that it means more than my very life. He forced the packet upon me, and even produced a gold coin which I made much play of refusing. I promised his letter would be delivered, and sent him to his bed with a stoop of hot wine. It was no easy thing to read his letter. His hand was poor, and he freely mixed several tongues in his grammary. However, after some difficulty, I realized that our hopes had come to fruition, Your Grace. Captain Dominic de Mortibus, believing himself to be dying, and knowing himself beyond the forgiveness of Mother Church, had sent for his old friend and comrade in arms, Tommaso della Forte, the Red Priest, our quarry. I forwarded his letter immediately. I did not contact your grace at once, fearing to disappoint you if della Forte might not answer the summons, but I made contact with our order to ensure that help was at hand. Della Forte arrived on the last day of de Mortibus' earthly life. The man cared not a whit for the vigilance of our order, Your Grace, for he made no pretense at disguise. Even though I have never met him, I could not fail to recognize him. The golden skin of Cathay, the scarlet clothing, the Roman nose with the dark, piercing eyes astride it, and, of course, the two swords slung crosswise over his back. In the last light of evening, out of the very teeth of a storm, he swept into the taproom like a crimson shadow, casting a pall over my little inn. Immediately I dispatched my runner to the order. Delaforte sought me out at once. Innkeeper, he said, and his voice was cold as the Tiber in winter. I have come at the behest of Signore Dominique de Mortibus who writes that he is lodging here. It is so, said I, but I fear that may be the case for only some little while. The Signore is terribly ill. I must ask your business with him, Signore. You must not, said Della Forte, fixing me with his darkling eye. It is betwixt we two alone. At this I pretended alarm, and said, The Signore is my good friend, stranger, and I will not see him harmed. You seem a man of war. The Signore is weak and faint. I beg you at least lay aside your blades to ease my mind, and I will take you to his side. He looked at me then, and I felt a cold touch in my chest, as though he saw inside my very soul. Then he crooked a small smile, and gave his swords into my keeping. I put them in a strong chest in the cellar, and hastened to show this della forte 
to De Mortibus' sickbed. Once we entered the room, I rushed to De Mortibus' side, loudly announcing his visitor. Then at once I bent my head and whispered to the sick man that I did not trust the stranger in red, so I would remain in the room to watch over him. De Mortibus found the strength to smile at me then, but I did not give him time to send me away. Instead I set to cleaning and dusting the room, all the while keeping a watchful eye upon the pair. Delaforte approached the bed. De Mortibus' wasted appearance and the evil smell of him in the closed room must have come as a shock to the red priest, but I saw upon his face only concern and care. "'Oh, friend,' he said, "'is it really you?' "'It is I,' said De Mortibus. "'Thank you for coming, Tommaso.' Delaforte cast a suspicious glance my way, and I pretended to fix a catch on the shutters. The innkeeper, he said suggestively. Marotti has been my good friend, said de Mortibus. I have had no one to trust save him, and he has brought you to my side. Ah, it's good to see you again, Tommaso. After so many years I was not sure you would come. The red priest knelt and took the sick man's hand in his own. My captain, he said. De Mortibus fell to coughing, so I fetched wine and two goblets. You may be sure, your grace, that I did not try the draught upon Delaforte after your warnings. They drank their wine and spoke for some little time while I tarried, waiting for the brothers of the order to arrive. The room grew dark. I sought to light a candle, but de Mortibus forbade it. Let my friend see the face his captain wears in memory, not the one he wears now, said the dying soldier. I've seen too many friends die to wish the experience upon another. The talk went on, though de Mortibus grew weaker. Often he paused to catch his breath. They mentioned names, some that I knew, others I did not. Then I heard de Mortibus ask the red priest to hear his confession, but Delaforte refused. I cannot, he said, God has left me. Please, said de Mortibus, his voice a ragged gasp. You, you know what awaits me. You were there at hush. In a flicker of distant lightning I saw Delaforte lay his finger across the dying man's lips. Yes, my captain, I know. I remember only too well. Yet I cannot hear your confession, nor give you absolution. Then there is no hope for me, said de Mortibus. No other priest will come to the bed of the man who burned the monastery of Thraxos. That is so agreed Delaforte, yet, were we there again, I should still do as I did. And I, said de Mortibus. In the silence that followed, I wondered what it was they had done, and why I had never heard of such a monastery. There is another way, said Delaforte at last. If you will have it, I will sit vigil over you. I do not understand, said de Mortibus faintly. It would take much to explain, replied his friend, but if you will trust me one last time, my captain, I will sit in vigil for you, 
and unless my powers fail me, what you fear will not come to pass. Then another flicker of lightning showed that he cocked his head as though listening. I too had been listening carefully, but only the mutter of their words and the distant growl of thunder had reached me. Yet the red priest knew something was amiss. At the door, he said quietly, but even as he spoke, the door was flung wide. Now, at this point in my tale, I would forgive your grace if he chose to doubt his servant, for the little that I saw beggars telling. In keeping with your warnings, I had prepared a full fist of five brothers to take this Delaforte. By good fortune and guile, I had even relieved him of his swords, as I told you. Yet as the first brother set foot in the room, Delaforte was upon him. The man must have the very eyes of a cat, your grace. I myself saw only shadows and sometimes stark whiteness as the storm drew closer. But somehow, Delaforte took the first brother and killed him, silently, mark you, before the second entered. Lightning showed the second brother as he stumbled over the body of the first, with the third close behind him, but it was what the lightning did not show that turned my bowels to water. Delaforte was gone. The remaining brothers entered the room. I could see by the weak light from the stairs behind them that their weapons were in their hands. They spread out in an arc, and I threw my hands in the air, making a secret sign to show them that they might not kill me. Then I fell to the floor, loudly entreating their mercy, for I did not truly think Delaforte was gone, and I did not wish him to know I was complicit with the brothers. Thunder came, and the door slammed shut, plunging the room into utter blackness. I believe now that after killing the first brother, Delaforte sprang to the low rafters and hid, then dropped down behind the rest as they came in, but you may be assured, Your Grace, that in that moment I thought him a very demon. From the darkness I heard the hiss of steel and a cry. A body fell. There was a ragged snapping sound and another body fell. Then something flashed past my face very close. Lightning forked once, twice, and in the ghastly flicker steel swept a bloody arc. Two heads hit the floor at almost the same time. Then thunder crashed and the bodies fell, and only Delaforte remained standing. He lit the candle and held it aloft. Ignoring the corpses strewn about the room, he sought the man on the bed, but it was too late. Ah, Dominic, said Delaforte, it is bitter to see you thus. With two quick fingers he closed the staring eyes and turned to me. Innkeeper, Dominic named you friend. Will you stand by him? He spoke calmly and evenly, as though nothing of note had occurred. I, on the other hand, was terrified to the edge of my very reason. Delaforte frowned at my silence and pulled me to my feet. Come, man, he said, I mean you no harm. Will you help? W what a man can do, I will do for him, I said, when I found my voice. But tell me, please, who are you? And who are these others? There is not time, he replied. Night has already fallen. I must make preparations. Is there an empty room? I showed him to the second room de Mortibus had from me, a little chamber that gave on to the courtyard where he taught his few pupils. Delaforte pronounced it satisfactory and pressed upon me three golden coins. 
The men in the upstairs room must disappear, he told me. It would be best if you could do it alone, but if you cannot, be sure to use only those you trust with your life. I will tell you more later, but for now it must suffice that they are of the Inquisition, and bitter enemies of both myself and poor Dominic. Burn their garments. If they have any jewellery, you must take it lest their bodies be identified. Melt it down, whether you dispose of it or choose to keep the precious stuff. Even their weapons must be lost down a deep well. Believe me, Signore Marotti, you want no truck with these men. They must have discovered that Dominic was here. When they do not report back, you may be certain that more will follow, and still more. I hope to conclude my business here before that happens. You may then speak of me with a clean conscience, if you choose. I know that your grace will forgive me, and I hope devoutly that God may do likewise, for I did most of what Delaforte asked. I had no desire to explain to the city watchmen how five men came to a violent end in my establishment, for it could only reflect poorly upon myself and upon the church we both serve. I did perform last rites for the brothers, but unfortunately I was forced to lay them to rest in unhallowed ground, a disused quarry some distance from the city. When I returned the night was almost gone. Delaforte had removed the body of his friend from the upstairs room. The chamber on the courtyard was securely barred, and I retired, confused and frustrated by the night's work. The next day Delaforte came to me. There were dark shadows beneath his eyes, but otherwise he seemed hale. He wore his swords again, though I do not know how he recovered them. Food, he said, and offered me coin. Clean water as well. Two more nights the vigil lasts. For your own sake, you must see that no one tries to enter the chamber until it is over. He sat himself at the low table in my kitchen, and I sent the maid on an errand to the markets. Then I myself gave him bread and cheese, and he ate like a starving man, tearing off great chunks in his teeth and gulping them down whole. This vigil, I said, you do not practice sorcery in my house. I know that de Mortibus was no friend to the church, but surely he would not countenance traffic with the very devil himself. Delaforte paused in his eating and frowned at me. Magic need not be of the devil. Indeed, I'm not certain there is such a creature. Still, be at ease, I practice no sorcery here. The custom of keeping watch over the dead is known in many countries. Nevertheless, it would not be well if my vigil were interrupted, especially by night. Have you more of this good cheese and perhaps another loaf? I will take them and a ewer of clean water. He put several cheeses and two flat loaves into a wallet, along with a smoked haunch which I gave him, which took both his hands to carry. Therefore it was I who carried the tall ewer before me to the chamber on the courtyard, but though I made to enter the room, Delaforte held me back. Leave the water here by the door, he said. I will carry it within. Best you have nothing more to do with me. If all goes well... I will leave with the dawn of the third day. He smiled at me then, like a man who tries to show a child that he means no harm. That smile gave me a deep chill. Yet I thought of my duty to your grace, and of your demand for knowledge of this red priest, and I stood my ground saying nothing. 
he looked at me. You're curious, he said at last. I understand. I will strike a bargain with you. Come in with me and see what I have done. Stay if you will, but leave before the setting of the sun, for if you stay longer, tradition demands that you remain until sunrise. He stepped aside and held the door for me as I entered the chamber. The chamber was much as it had always been, save that on a table in the middle lay Demortibus' mortal remains, covered head to toe with a soft black cloth. There were tallow marks at the head and the foot of the table, and the black cloth had many marks upon it, some of which I recognised from my studies. I did not say this to Delaforte, you may well understand. Instead I affected concern and peered closely at the cloth. These marks, I said, you said there was no sorcery. Your priest reads and writes, does he not? I nodded, and Delaforte went on. What sorcery is there in mere writing? I am no scholar, I lie, but I have seen letters and I can make my mark. These shapes are strange to me. What do they mean? He took a corner of the cloth in his calloused hand and smoothed it for me to see. The letters you have seen write the Latin of the priests, said Delaforte. In other tongues there are other ways of writing. There are letters of the Hebrew alphabet that make words in Aramaic, the very language of our Lord Jesus Christ himself. This here, he pointed to a group of four symbols in a line, this is the name of God in that ancient tongue. He looked up at me and smiled again, but this time there was something of true warmth in his face. You see, even one without letters must know that sorcery may not use the name of God for evil ends. This cloth is simply a part of the tradition of the vigil. I let him comfort me with that, and I asked a question or two more of no consequence. And I asked a question or two more of no consequence. Then shyly I told him of my friendship for Demortibus. I knew I could not share his vigil, I said, yet perhaps we might share a meal, this Delaforte and I, and even a little wine while the sun was in the sky. In honour of the dead, I added. Delaforte once more looked at me with his gaze that raked the walls of my soul. Then at last he nodded, and I brought fruit and wine to have with our bread and cheese and smoked meats. The red priest drank sparingly and watered his wine. In truth he was a poor companion, his eyes constantly wandering to the half-open door, gauging the passage of the sun through the sky. For my part I chatted like a novice, telling him of my invented life as a failed merchant and later soldier of fortune. All this was as your grace and I set out together in our careful planning, yet though I spoke in vague terms and used few names, I could not but feel a touch of fear at lying to this man with his black impenetrable eyes. In turn, I learned some little of him, though I suspected that none of it would be new to your grace. I heard the tale of his birth in Far Cathay, fathered by a Venetian merchant seeking to mimic the success of the far-famed Marco Polo. He even unbent himself enough to show me a slow, graceful dance of his homeland, which he said was also a deadly and secret way of fighting, though I pretended disbelief and spoke loudly of a good sword in the hand. 
I could not help but remember the five brothers dispatched so swiftly the night before. Despite our talks, when the sun westered, there were still a hundred questions clamouring for each one that he had answered. Nevertheless, I was much relieved when the sun touched the far roof of the inn and Delaforte pressed me to leave, Your Grace, for in truth I found his company unsettling. That night, when all was still, I crept to the inner door of the chamber. A very little light showed beneath the rough sturdy planks, but the door was well made, and there was no chink through which I might see. I pressed my ear to the wood and listened. Though I could make out no words, I could discern distinctly two voices in the rhythm of conversation. One voice sounded to me like the Red Priest, but the other, the other was strange. It changed often, now deep and slow, now high and quick like a child. Even without words, there was something in that voice which prickled the hairs at the back of my neck, and I jerked my head back from the door in alarm. I slept very badly that night. The next day my hoped-for reinforcements still had not arrived. Anxious that Delaforte should not slip free, I brought him a fine breakfast of mushrooms and bacon. He thanked me generously, and set to with a will, while I once more examined the chamber. Nothing seemed to have changed, so I essayed a question. "'I hope you will forgive me,' I said, "'but last night I passed by these chambers, and it seemed to me that I heard voices from within. Was there a visitor in the darkness?' Delaforte frowned. In a manner of speaking, he said, please ask no more and avoid this chamber tonight at all costs. It is the last night of the vigil and I must concentrate. I saw that the shadows beneath his eyes had deepened to rich purple bruises. Had he not slept at all, nor indeed the night before? I thought to ask, but recalled his request and took my leave. He watched me go with hooded eyes, and it was all I could do not to shudder. The day passed with excruciating slowness. The men promised by your grace did not arrive. In desperation I considered begging aid of Signore Bualtieri, but I could think of no means of doing so which would not endanger the secrecy your grace impressed upon me. What to do? How to keep Delaforte from slipping through my fingers? I was considering disguises and deceits by which I might follow the Red Priest on the morrow, when perhaps an hour before dawn the man Castellano arrived with the bravos sent by your grace. You are Marotti, said Castellano when I gave him entrance. He made it sound like an accusation. Where is the heretic and renegade della Forte? I looked at him and his men closely, considering my answer. Although I had not met Castellano previously, his reputation preceded him, and I saw instantly that his size and strength had not been exaggerated. Eight men came behind him, all with the wicked look of Florentine assassins or Venetian knife-fighters, surly, scarred, and armed to the teeth. My heart lifted a little when I saw that three of them, including Castellano himself, bore heavy crossbows. I am Marotti, I agreed. Delaforte is nearby. He sits in vigil over his dead friend, but I fancy there may be another in the chambers with him. There are two doors. If you wait until dawn, when he is at his weakest after a sleepless night, you may break through both portals at once and trap him in a crossfire. Castellano shook his shaggy head. My employer wants Delaforte alive. 
We will not use our crossbows. We have clubs and staves with which to subdue him. You know of his skills. The story of my lords, the five who came before you. There are stories of me too, Castellano showed his teeth. And Lorenzo over there. <laughs> yes, and Marco as well. Take me to this red priest innkeeper. I will match stories with him and we shall see how the tale ends. He laughed, and a murmur of amusement rose from his bravos. Now, Your Grace, while Castellano was undoubtedly a man of prowess, he had little time for subtlety. My intent was to show him to the chamber, then take to my own rooms while he stationed his men for the assault. If by ill chance he failed, I did not desire the Red Priest to suspect my part in the matter. However, no sooner did I show him the courtyard entrance to the chamber of Della Forte's vigil, when Castellano strode across like a hairy mountain and burst the door with a single kick. "'Hold, renegade!' he roared. "'I am Captain Dario Castellano of the Holy Inquisition, and I arrest you, Tommaso Della Forte, by order of Bishop Scarsi. Lay down your arms!' He charged into the room, and the bravos followed him in a body. More cautiously I moved up and peeped around the doorframe. The chamber was lit by candles at the head and foot of de Mortibus' body, and by six more candles placed at the points of a star drawn on the floor in chalk, with the table and della forte at its centre. Around the points of the star there was a circle, and beyond that by an arm's length another circle. Complex sigils marked every angle on every vertice of the pattern. There was a smell in the air of burning incense and something else, something dark and tainted. Truly, my little chamber had become the lair of a sorcerer. From the centre of the pattern, the red priest spoke. As you value your soul, Castellano, do not set foot within that circle. Turn and leave this room at once, while you can. We will meet again in the morning, if we must. Castellano drew back his head and bellowed a great laugh. <laughs> Do you imagine I fear your filthy magics, heretic, he cried. Reaching to his throat, he brought forth a glorious golden crucifix and held it high. This was dipped in the blood of Holy St. Dominic himself. It has been blessed by the Pope and carried with me on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. I do not fear even Lucifer with this holy relic in my hand. He brandished it like a weapon and laughed once again. Delaforte's eyes narrowed to slits and he shifted his balance slightly. I am no friend to you, Castellano, or to your Inquisition. Still, you are a human being, and as one human being to another, I warn you, place no faith in idols, set but a toe across that line, and your fate will be sealed. Nine armed men faced him, Your Grace, a man who had not slept in three days, and yet he stood his ground. Castellano was headstrong, but no fool. Keeping a watchful eye on Della Forte, he signalled three of his men. Stay to the outside of the circle, he said. Go to the farther door and prevent his escape if he comes your way. Three more men he assigned to the door by which they had entered. The remaining two he sent to points on the edge of the circle, and himself took up a place such that the three of them made a triangle with the red priest in the middle. At my signal! said Castellano, and lifted a heavy club in one hand, still holding the crucifix in the other. 
For the last time, Castellano, said De La Forte, if you enter the circle, pray I am swift enough to kill you. For the first time he reached smoothly over his shoulders and drew his twin swords in a single motion. Castellano roared and set himself to charge. Yet I saw that even as the church soldier gathered himself, Della Forte moved. He spun away from Castellano, his right arm flashing in an arc that unleashed the short straight sword it carried. The sword flew like an arrow, taking the first of Castellano's two supporters in the throat. He reeled backwards and died without a sound. The red priest continued to spin, and with his left hand hurled the second of his swords. It pierced the armpit of the other bravo, and he too fell back beyond the outer circle. Then the red priest finished turning, and from somewhere he plucked forth a single dagger, formed like a cross with a keen point but no edge. Hold, Castellano! he cried, and sprang like a tiger towards his enemy. Though he had slain two men in less time than it took to draw breath, Delaforte was not quite swift enough. Despite the death of his companions, Castellano did not check his headlong rush, and as Delaforte made his spring, the big man crossed into the space between the two circles. Instantly, Delaforte stopped and assumed a strange fighting guard. Balanced like a cat, he splayed his left hand low before him and held his right behind him, out of sight of the soldier. Fool, he hissed, you with the crossbow. Delaforte called to the man in the doorway near me, whom Castellano had called Marco. Shoot him now, shoot and say a prayer. Between the chalk circles, Castellano stiffened. His eyes grew wide and his mouth opened, but he made no sound. I watched in horror as the vessels beneath his skin stood out like snakes, writhing, streaking with angry colour. The powerful muscles knotted and bunched, and foam gathered in Castellano's beard as he struggled vainly with something invisible, yet vast and powerful. At last, with a straining cry, he raised his crucifix, and slowly, but with utmost deliberation, drove it deep into his own right eye, bursting it horribly so that the juices spurted upon his face. Within the inner circle, Delaforte's voice rose to a shriek, chanting in a language I did not recognize. Then there was a popping and tearing, and Castellano's mail burst apart, falling away as his body swelled and writhed hideously. Beside me, Marco wretched and hastily brought his crossbow to bear. The quarrel seemed to slow as it entered the circle, and it hung queerly in the air before rebounding from the flailing, struggling meat that had been Dario Castellano and tumbling to the floor. A terrible voice, deeply resonant, yet high-pitched as a child, spoke. Now I have flesh, it said. The words slobbered thickly. Now I have flesh. The thing that had been Dario Castellano stood tall and rolled its tiny unhuman head atop its grotesquely muscular shoulders. Flesh, it growled. Good. "'Run!' cried the Red Priest. "'Flee while you can! The circle will hold it some little time yet!' In their desperate hurry to escape, Marco and his companions knocked me aside like an empty wine-sack. My head struck the wooden door-frame and I fell. Dazed, and indeed your grace too terrified to move, lest I draw the attention of the unspeakable thing facing the Red Priest, I lay with utter stillness. The creature strode forward and stopped 
at the edge of the inner circle. Give me what is mine, it said, and I saw that the tiny wizened head was almost entirely taken up by a mouth full of needle-sharp teeth. Give me what was promised, Delaforte said nothing. There was a queer, empty expression on his face, as though he stood negligently on the training floor, instead of face to face with a thing of nightmares. His breathing was slow and even. Give me what was promised, it said again, more clearly and powerfully. Then, without warning, it lunged, hurling its bulk against the invisible barrier. The Red Priest staggered back a step, raising his left hand, which trembled as though he pressed against an unseen force. Another step back he took, and then another, and then the creature burst its bonds and fell upon him with a scream of hellish rage. Then it stopped. Somehow, Delaforte stood not in front of it, but behind and to its side, as though it had run past him in its fury. His left arm was still raised, but the right arm with its concealed dagger now stood stiffly out, the lower half obscured by the body of the awful thing. Then, while it stood tame and still, he whipped the arm free, and I saw the bloody stiletto in his fist as it plunged once, twice, three times into the distorted flesh stolen from poor Castellano. Slowly, soundlessly, the thing crumpled. Somewhere in the distance a cock crowed. Delaforte's head snapped up and he swept the room with his gaze. At last he saw something that seemed to draw his attention. He took a swift step and with deft fingers plucked forth a little mouse from a hole in the stone wall. Holding it gently he lifted it and turned it this way and that. Then without glancing at me he said, Come, Dominican, I would have you see this. Aching in every limb, trembling with fear, I pulled myself to my knees. My voice quavered as I attempted a reply. Is it I whom you address, Signore della Forte? The red priest turned his gaze upon me then, and I stood as quickly as I could. I knew you for a servant of the Inquisition the moment I caught your scent, dog priest, he said. Better to know where and who your enemy is than to slay him and face an unknown. He taught me as much. He nodded at the shrouded body of Demortibus, and his voice was soft. After a moment he gathered himself and went on. You may cross the circles safely now, he said. The third day is dawning. There will be no more of that kind coming. He did not point to the twisted vile corpse, but his meaning was clear. Most cautiously I joined him and peered at the little creature he now cupped in his left hand. Seeing only a mouse, I glanced at the bloody dagger in his right. It was indeed a queer thing, seemingly made from a single enormous nail of black iron, perhaps nine inches in length. The point was wickedly sharp, I saw. Delaforte caught the direction of my gaze. It is called Nail. And it is a great treasure, he said. It is one of the reasons your Bishop Scarzi wants me, Dominican. He wiped the dagger fastidiously upon one of the rags of Castellano's clothes and made it disappear into a cunning sleeve sheath. Look you, he ordered. He held up the mouse. Do you see? 
I looked carefully at the tiny creature which sat fearlessly upon his palm cleaning its whiskers. This time, I did see. The eyes, I gasped. Two colours. One is black, but one is green. I have not seen the like before. Are you certain? said the red priest. He set the creature upon the floor and sent it on its way. It paused briefly in the doorway, then scurried into the darkness. Better luck this time, old friend, said Delaforte softly. He set about recovering his blades and bundling his gear. You will see to a proper burial for the body of my friend, he said, as he sheathed his weapons. As he started for the door, I called out to him, You were with Demortibus at, at this Thraxos. He stopped and a certain tension came into his shoulders, but he did not turn or speak. One day something will come for you, Tommaso della Forte. If you will not seek forgiveness of the church, who will sit vigil over your body? His head bowed slightly, I thought. Then he shrugged and walked out into the darkness, and I did not see him again, Your Grace. There is little more to add, the fools employed by Castellano did not return. I was forced to reveal my identity and seek aid from Signore Bualtieri in disposing of the various corpses, including the horribly twisted ruin of Captain Castellano himself. Bualtieri imprisoned me, of course, being a Ghibelline stalwart, but before I paid my way free I used my time well in composing this letter. Since then I have asked certain people questions which I had long avoided asking, and their replies have been both enlightening and distressing. By leave of your grace I herewith resign my orders. I will be priest and Dominican no more. I believe I will become an anchorite, a wilderness hermit studying the great texts. Or perhaps not. In any case, I will certainly never more seek after Tommaso della Forte, the Red Priest. If your grace wishes the man captured, he must find an agent far more capable than Teobaldo Marotti, for in truth I believe Della Forte to be perhaps the most dangerous man alive today. But more importantly, a good man, the most courageous and loyal of friends. For as your grace must well be aware, the eyes of Dominic de Mortibus were of two differing colours. One was black and the other green. Your servant no longer, Marotti. And welcome back. <laughs> so that's what that feels like. I'm a sucker for epistolary writing, especially in darker fiction. There's something about the perspective of a tale told in a letter that makes me think deeper about the story. The mere presentation of the story's events constantly remind me that this is a finished product. Rather than the raw experience of an event, the author's account is the result of consideration and reflection by the character, offering not just a retelling of circumstances, but hindsight and introspection. Why was something left in? What other things were left out? 
And how might my perspective as a reader of the story shift or change as a result of those choices? I moved to the UK last year to go to law school. And as you may know, in merry old England, there are two categories of lawyers, solicitors and barristers. Barristers specialize in advocacy and courtroom presentation, whereas a solicitor fills the role most people think of when they think of an attorney, television portrayals aside, interviewing witnesses, reviewing documents, and writing briefs. The work a solicitor does acts like a filter, like an epistolary story. What pieces of evidence are discovered in the document review? What facts does a witness give because I asked the right question? And what direction does that take the case? Law is like a story in that it can be as much about process as product. And speaking of process, we asked Dirk if he wanted to say a few words about his story. Of this story, Dirk says, The Red Priest is a favorite character for me. He was more or less born from a repeat viewing of a peculiar but entertaining French historical thriller, Brotherhood of the Wolf. I loved the idea of a kung fu butt kicker in a monster haunted medieval Europe, and the Red Priest evolved from there. The Vigil was the first Red Priest story written. I had lost a good friend to cancer, and the frustration I felt at not being able to help nearly killed me as well. In the story, the Red Priest does for his friend what I could not do for mine. Sometimes, that's all the comfort you get. Feedback this week is for Podcastle episode 250, Logic and Magic in the Time of the Boat Lift, by Kat Rambo and Ben Burgess, and read by M.K. Hobson. There was nearly universal praise for the entertaining intro from the Annas. People enjoyed their attempt to differentiate themselves, although it seems like they may not have quite succeeded. People mostly enjoyed the story as well, whether they enjoyed the logic conundrums or not. Devoted135 said, The story was very nice, though I'm still wondering who the powers of light are exactly, and why it is that they chose her. However, I loved how she walked that fine line between utter world weariness and actually caring about not letting the bad guys win. Fire Turtle said, I bought textbooks on logic and philosophy after listening to this one. Possibly not what the authors intended, but I got caught up in the arguments and drifted into some other intellectual zone for a bit. I did get swept back up again in the story and enjoyed it. Not my favorite, but not my unfavorite good and strangely intellectually stimulating. I've been out of school and training for five years now, and I guess my brain is getting thirsty. Also, I really want me some toad eye. Also, also, every time I hear MK, I have a moment of complete fangirlishness to the tune of, that's MK Hobson. I read her book. It was awesome. She's awesome. Oh my God, she's talking to me through my radio. And then I get over it. Kind of. (laughs) Thanks for the comments. If you have something to say about this or any other fine podcastle offering, visit the discussion threads at forum.escapeartist.net and please consider visiting podcastle.org to make a donation. Every cent goes to paying the authors and keeping the podcast going so that they can bring you the best in fantasy fiction week after week. If you can't donate, tell your friends about them and share the story love. That's the show for this week. Thanks for listening. A big thank you also to Anne Leckie, Peter Wood, 
Anna Schwind, and Dave Thompson on behalf of myself and Graham from Cast of Wonders for letting us visit the castle this week. Until next week, this is Marguerite Kenner for Cast of Wonders, reminding you to never trust the packaging. No matter what section of the bookstore it's found in, a good story is a good story. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend, or post your blog about it, or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. Mark Twain said, It's no wonder that truth is stranger than fiction. Fiction has to make sense.